a woman would pee in a cup, you'd give that pee to the lab, then they would take that pee out, inject the frog with the urine, and if your you know, hormone levels were indicative of you having a child, females frogs immediately ovulate, starts dropping eggs like crazy. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. So that's it. It's hatching season. It's a big time of year. <laughs> it's weird. You said that like it was the end of the thing. Like, like so it was, that's yeah, it's it. It's just the beginning. Like, yeah. Oh, and it is just the beginning of hatching season. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it is so like pivotal. It's like we were completely off board and then we're about to get slapped in the face. We just got one I'm clutch still so bored. far. Yeah, I know. We're still bored because we only have one clutch. And then, and then we have like three clutches due. No, we have like four or five clutches due within like four or five days. Yeah, but they're all being weird. So right now we only have two clutches, one clutch of Florida Kings and one clutch of clutch of corns. But like we have two that were due on the sixth. And And they are so dimpled. I was telling him today, it literally doesn't even look like a snake could fit in the egg because it is about what like this tall because it they've sucked all the sack Absorbed out and it's all the so yolk. it's so small like i literally <laughs> don't. like it's almost at a point where you would expect to see the impression of a corn snake and i candled right. it to make sure because i was like something must have went weird it's here wrong. it's still born <laughs> at the end of you know at the very end but uh it moved around so it's in there just hopefully it, it will uh i mean are these gonna be the smallest corn soon. snakes that we've ever seen to fit in there i don't know maybe it's nah. roomier on the inside we just need to uh miss frizzle to uh oh is that the magic school bus yes (laughs) thank you i was gonna be mad if you didn't recognize that reference yeah we need miss frizzle to um take it that was never an episode of magic school bus which it should have been like snake egg they always would shrink you and go into like a fallopian tube or something ew no (laughs) they didn't teach you that no They would shrink into like beehives and like <laughs> random shit like that. But they should snake and then hop in a snake egg and see what it feels like <laughs> on the inside of a snake egg. Wow, that's a note for the uh, the show that got canceled for like the writers. 20 years ago. No, yeah. I think they brought it back maybe Ooh. on Netflix or something. We need a live action magic school bus now, I think. No, I'm mad at live actions right now. So mad. Because they're making Mulan, but there's no songs. And you can't do a Disney movie without songs. There's no songs? No, which is so stupid. Okay. What are we talking okay, about? I'm sorry. We got off topic real easy, real quick. So if no one knows, we were talking about hatching season and, and Patreon. And no one knows, this is a snake podcast, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, which is going to be even weirder when we start talking about crawfish in about two seconds. So, <laughs> so um, Patreon supporters. Oh, yes, Patreon supporters get first dibs as far as when things are pipping out and everything like that i'm putting it on patreon and then you're getting the first available animals for those you know besides return customers and people who are already on lists patreon gets first peek at available animals that 
haven't been at least, uh, you know, people on the list and stuff like that. So you get an idea of what we're working with. So that's one advantage of being on Patreon. Otherwise, there's other cool things to get like shirts or you can just straight up buy a shirt. That would be sweet, too. All of that goes to support this podcast, which is sponsor free, but not random, random rambling about Disney movies free. Um, yeah. Uh, shit. <laughs> um, other than that, or oh my god, I'm a mess today. Poor city Short, no, com. you were saying you can buy sh- shirts on our website. Mm-hmm. You are not modeling one of our shirts, but I no. am. Obviously, people in the downloads can't see that. But if you like reptiles and rugrats, get yourself a rugrats reptile shirt. Uh, other than that, we officially signed up for Haver de Grace Boom. show today, so August 10th. Um, I think it'll be exciting for us because we get to like meet all our Maryland supporters. Really, it's only an hour and a half from Philly, so it'll kind of probably be the same people. But it will be a okay. different crowd as oh, far as the local crowd bubble. that goes in. But it's also our first show of the 2019 season that is on the books. So obviously our season's going super late, so we're not going to hit. I think we're only going to have. We're not going to hit. We're the only going to have these two we clutches at this show, probably like maybe three yeah which is okay because i don't know why it's okay it's not okay <laughs> damn it <laughs> i actually wish no i wish we could do more now because since i'm not um teaching it's just yeah. easier like we have more time you know to prep on friday and everything it's going to be a lot harder during the school year uh to do these shows but but we we did it last year we'll do it again in between moving just after moving we did a show you know so it's not we uh, no need to feel bad for us. Right. We're having fun. Okay. <laughs> um, but other than that, that's really it. I think that's it. Catch videos soon. Yeah. I'm saying we're gonna have it out by Sunday. So if I yeah. say it on here, we have to have it out by Sunday. Okay. Well, if they hear it, then we have to do it. Sunday's a very not advantageous day to post a youtube video so i'll need to get it done probably thursday i hope to get it done by thursday shouldn't have said that huh playing the game the risk high so Um, since you guys all came here to talk or hear a podcast rather than hear us ramble about stuff today's guest will be dr zach Lockman. He is associate professor at West Liberty University of biology. <laughs> Damn it. I thought I got all the words right. <laughs> so, Dr. Lockman, and I was really confident by the end. I know I like, you're saying it. Did it. Exactly. Like, <laughs> so, he is joining us from a hotel room. So, what exactly are you doing over there? Uh, well, hello, all. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm up here with my undergrad and grad students uh, sampling crayfish. That's what I study you know, in the field uh, on, in Lake Erie in Presque Isle. So it's a very beautiful place. Is there anything in particular that interests you about the crayfish in that area? Um, I mean, I could go super nerdy here, but uh, it, they're cool. We'll leave it at that. Um, they're with crayfish, there's some fun ecological phenomena you get to deal with, like invasive species interacting with native species and how they actually, you know, what happens when they come together. And so we're up here trying to figure out if that's happening. Um, today was the end of the first field day, and we have yet to find an invasive crayfish. In fact, I don't think we found a crayfish yet. We we just laid a ton of traps and 
I had people scuba diving, so we were diving in the lake, and all we saw were these things called zebra mussels and gobies, which are both invasive, by the way, which the gobies may be why we didn't see any crayfish, but yeah, and lots of turtles. Uh, so lots of turtles. For, for a lot of us, I think we just <laughs> think uh, crayfish, there's like one species and we eat yeah. it. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> explain a little bit of uh, the different species and the invasive nature of what's going on. Uh, well, with, with crayfish in North America, I get it a lot. Like uh, people say, what do you study? And then I say, I study crayfish. And then people say there's more than one. There's actually about 400 species in North America. And there's quite a few that don't have names yet. So, Whoa. you know, people grow up with them in creeks and, and they know what, what those crayfish are. But, you know, the whopping nine crayfish biologists haven't made it to their creek yet to figure out whether that species has been described as science or not. So that's where myself and my very limited group of friends <laughs> get to go out and, you know, do our thing. So, yeah. Wow, that is crazy. I had no idea that there was uh, two or three species, but there's 400. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's quite a few. Um, so what exactly is bringing invasive, you know, species up where you are? So the invasives that were brought here uh, were brought here in association with fishing. Um, and what, what they are is this thing called the rusty crayfish. And a rusty crayfish have a big rusty dot on their side, and that's where they get their name. Uh, but these things are, like, damn near bulletproof. They're basically aquatic cockroaches. That's a really good way to think of them. Um, and what happens is they will, uh, when they're released into the environment, they eat aquatic plants. Like, that's what they love to do. And at the same time, they're kind of nasty towards other crayfish so they beat the hell out of the other crayfish and then if they kill them they eat them too so it's uh kind of a fun interaction but when they <laughs> eat all the plants you lose all the habitat that the crayfish need but you also lose the habitat the fish need and other animals need so it's actually a really you know it's a bigger issue than most people realize if you have a, a thriving invasive crayfish population so now forgive the ridiculous yeah, question fine. but obviously We've heard people call them mud bugs, and I've yes. heard how eating a lobster or a crayfish is basically like, Poop. no, it's like <laughs> eating a straight up bug. Uh, mm -hmm. How closely related are they to a bug? They're very closely related to bugs. Uh, there was a paper that came out a couple years ago, and I'm certain there's probably somebody listening to this who's going to get like irate that I'm talking about it. But basically, these molecular evolutionary biology peeps did some DNA work and their analysis showed that crustaceans and insects were far more closely related than anybody thought they were. And they actually proposed that the insects of the world be lumped in with the crustaceans of the world. And they're basically, you know, one great big group of animals. And what's really cool is the genes that control the creation of a wing and a bug are the same genes that create the gills and a crayfish. And if you think about what a gill looks like and you think about what a wing looks like, they really don't look that different. Um, so, I mean, they, they look really different actually. But, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, but if you put a membrane over that gill and, and you, you know, uh, basically have the structures of a wing. So there's a group of taxonomists that are kind of pushing that, we treat insects as just basically highly terrestrial crustaceans. So, so in that regard, 
they do taste just like bugs. So there's that. And so obviously there's there's a big thing as far as people are going to be hesitant to eat things like crickets and ants, which in other countries they eat pretty readily. But yeah. Melissa will scarf down like 20 pounds of crayfish. I will not scarf down 20 pounds of crayfish. Okay, I don't even know how much. <laughs> I was like, no, I will scarf down 20 pounds of crawfish. Yes, crawfish. So what Sorry. is correct? As as a man of science, what is the correct terminology here? I, I think it depends on where you are. So if you are in the South, it is crawfish. If you are up in Pennsylvania, uh, Western PA, where we are currently, it's either crayfish or crawdad. If you're in someone's front yard in Missouri and they've got mud chimneys in their ditch, it's a mud bug. So, and then if you're in the mountains of West Virginia, it's a craw crab. So yeah, they got a lot of names. Oh, I've never That's heard that one. Yeah, craw crab's actually my favorite. I got in and um, it wasn't really an argument. I just got scolded by this older woman in central West Virginia. I went up to her door and knocked on it like I do like thousands and thousands of times. Um, and I asked for permission to catch the crayfish that, you know, were in the stream. Um, and that's how you keep like shotguns from showing up. So it's kind of standard lab protocol. And uh, she, she said in like the most iconic little old American lady voice, no son, they're not crayfish, they're craw crabs. Get it right. I was like, okay, cool. So I've used craw crabs ever since then. So. Craw? Crawcrafts. Whatever question works it. with the locals, it seems. <laughs> it just, it, it, it works. Okay. And when you do field work, um, there's this like balance when you are talking with people that live in the region you're doing your field work in, because you definitely want to be friendly. And if you're doing conservation like I'm doing, you definitely want them to like leave the interaction in a positive way, um, because that's just going to help your animal. But at the same time, when you get up into certain areas where they don't see a lot of people and you knock on a door and say, you're going to catch the little lobster like things live in the Creek. You, you can kiss like two hours of your life. Goodbye. They will not let you go because <laughs> you're the bright new shiny object. So, yeah. So you have to ask So basically <laughs> there's people obviously using them for fishing for bait and uh -huh. the people who are moving them for whatever reason. Okay. I mean, do they kind of know the difference between the species? So, yes and no. It depends on where they're at. Um, people will, so there's bait regulations now where a lot of these invasives show up. And a lot of times people get really upset when you try to regulate bait um, it, it, until the invasive crayfish show up and they crash the fishery. And then when the fishery's done, then everybody really wants to, you know, follow the regulation emphatically. So it's kind of a, um, you, you get, the reaction you want after all the damage is done, you don't necessarily get the reaction you want up front. But um, definitely fishermen that, that use crayfish as bait, they know the difference uh, between the species. They can't necessarily rattle off what their you know real name is, but that doesn't matter. They can totally identify them. And certain crayfish make better bait than others. There's, there's a group of crayfish, um, I guess their common name, they have spiny crayfish in their names a lot. They're in the genus Faxonius, they are like crack to a smallmouth bass. If you put them in front of the bass, the bass will eat them no matter what. And so that's the one that the fishermen will kind of hone in on. Whereas the other group of crayfishes that live in a lot of the streams in Eastern North America, they're big and bulky. And most of the time they're able to make a fish go away. Uh, 
and those species don't make as good as bait. So yeah, you, you definitely get regionalisms when it comes to that. Hmm. And what is the one that we eat? Yeah, I love the one this. that we eat is the red swamp crawfish. There, I said it. Sounds so appealing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I love, love swamps. <laughs> <laughs> I love crawfish. So it's yep. perfect. <laughs> yep. And, and interest. This is fun. If when you go to Petco or PetSmart or any of the big chain pet stores, and you go to the fish department, and you have like electric blue lobsters or fire lobsters or any of those different um, you know, morphs, because that's what, that's what they are. They're all just morphs of the red swamp crayfish. So they are really expensive versions of the crayfish or crawfish that most people eat. So there you go. Awesome. So we obviously covered the crawfish stuff, and I thank you for talking mm -hmm. about that. We have never talked about crawfish. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Actually, just kidding. We talk about crawfish probably too much. But, but not, like, a, not a scientific version. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> so just to transition into snakes, we were talking a little bit on the phone about yeah. in your area and in our areas, I guess not quite over here, but the queen snake. Yeah. And their primary diet is crawfish. So could you talk about a yeah. little bit of the relationship between that animal and crawfish? Oh, yeah. Um, queen snakes are awesome, for one. Got to get that out there before we can go any further. Uh, they only eat soft-shelled crayfish. So it's not that they eat crayfish. They eat crayfish that have just molted. And they're they're nuts in as far as uh, ecology is concerned. Like, I'm a naturalist, and I just go, I geek the hell out over that animal because it's, it's out in its environment. It's not just eating every crayfish that it bumps into. It's easy for them to find those. It's only eating the ones that have just molted and it's only eating them within 24 hours of them molting. So if you think about that and you know, there's a lot of people here that take care of snakes and you know, I have a hard time getting corn snakes half the time to eat a mouse when we're trying to get them started. Could you imagine if they would like only eat a mouse when it was just born within 24 hours? Like that's just nuts. Um, but they're able to you know, persist. And we definitely study those at West Liberty because with my lab, um, we do a whole lot of work with crayfish, but you know my roots in science were in herpetology. So anytime I can pull the herpetology back into the fold, we do. So I have a little research effort that focuses on crayfish and herps. It's kind of fun. So you, do you know exactly um, how often a crawfish molts as well as how often a queen snake eats? Well, one of my grad students actually did this for his thesis. Um, name's Dan Meyer. We were looking at uh, the ecology of queen snakes right next to West Liberty. And with the crayfish, there's two species that are live in the stream where he was studying. And one of them, um, the whole population molts in May, and then it molts again, sorry, it molts in April, and then it molts again in July. And so it's, you've got this boom of food for the queen snakes, for lack of a better word. But then the other species that lives in the stream, about 30 to 40% of the population is molting every single month. So wow. what we did is we wanted to see, like, do they gorge when these animals, when uh, there's so many crayfish available to them, or do they, you know, just eat any crayfish they bump into, or are they specializing on the animal that's consistent, even though it's harder to find? And what we found in a nutshell was that um, the queen snakes absolutely would just gorge during those two mass molts. And the two mass molts were very convenient for the life history of the queen snake because one of those happens when they first come out of hibernation. So they need to bulk up and get a whole lot of fat and nutrient. Mm 
And then the other one happens right before the females have babies. So I don't think it's an accident. But mm. there's a whole lot of co-evolution going on there, which is pretty cool. <laughs> that and is then, amazing. Yeah. Um, and then when the when the uh, females egg out, or not egg out, but when they have all their young, um, the that same species of crayfish that does that mass molt, the the individuals that were born in May are now bigger. And they're molten like crazy in the fall. And what we found out was that the queen snakes then eat heavily on that, what we call young of the year cohort of the crayfish, which basically the animal, the crayfish that had just been born that year, back in April. So yeah, cool stuff. That's just crazy that a snake so specialized can yeah. survive. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, we, we think of most snake species as pretty generalist as far as, uh, you know, yeah. they'll eat up reptiles, lizards. What's there, whatever's yeah. there. Especially yeah. things near the water, like a queen snake. You would think it would be taking advantage of all the stuff there. Yeah. But. No, they only eat the soft-shell crayfish. It's, I don't know. I love them to death. I, I like animals that live in water and streams and wetlands and things like that. So uh, I'm the I'm the weird guy who loves Nerodia. They're actually my favorite. Um, so Regina are just very close Close second to the Nerodia. So, yep. And we studied the common water snakes that live, the Cip Nerodia cypodon that live right alongside the queen snakes. Uh, we studied them as well. So, Awesome. And what what first kind of got you into the path that you're on now? What got you into herpetology? Um, there was never a time in my life where I wasn't the animal nerd. I, I was, you know, my parents tell me stories about when I was little, I was in a stroller and they were pushing me down the street and this bird landed on my chest. And I'm, it was an English sparrow, which is basically like a rat with wings. Um, but it landed on there and I kind of cupped it very gingerly. And my mom had a stroke and then I wouldn't let go of the bird. Like they were trying to get my hands off of it. And I was like, no, this is mine. Uh, and so ever since that moment, probably it's just been animals, animals, more animals and animals. I don't like cute, cuddly things. I mean, mammals are cool. Um, Birds are okay, uh, but it was definitely herps, bugs, fish, you know, all the, the uncharismatic <laughs> critters of the world. So, um, and I've just never not done this. Like, I'm the weird person that when I was in kindergarten said, you know, I'm going to be a zoologist one day. That's just what I'm going to do. And I'm doing it. So it's pretty cool. Can't complain. And did you start it all? I know you private keep now, but did yeah. you do it growing up? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, my first herp, I would have been in second grade. Uh, and, you know, we're not allowed to do this now. I am not condoning this. Uh, but my grandfather caught a box turtle and threw it in the trunk of his car and then drove it home and gave it to me. And it was appropriately named Boxy. And... Boxy the box turtle lived with us for about a year and then we got another one and then we got another one and you know inevitably we released them all. Um, I wasn't allowed to have snakes until I graduated high school but my parents were really cool and they let me keep um, lizards in high school. So I I had the obligatory like three foot iguana, uh, savanna monitors, day geckos, uh, just basically any lizard I could get my hands on. And then when I graduated college or so i graduated high school my mom infamously said you could have a jeep or you could get a snake and i didn't like hesitate at all because a i knew she was bluffing um 
and B, I was like, I want a snake. And so she was like, all right, fine. You get a snake. And like all of us, it was the right decision. (laughs) And so I went from one snake to about 15 snakes in a month and a half, I think. I mean, did she let let you get a snake that was even like half the value of the Jeep? No, not even remotely close to it. It was a corn snake I got for like 15 bucks. (laughs) I will take one Bolin's python. Thank you. Exactly. One blackhead coming right up. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I did that. And then when I went to college, I went to college at West Liberty and my advisor was awesome. Um, He was a mentor to me in high school and he was a herpetologist. Uh, his name was Mr. Well, Bob Gordon, but I call him Mr. Gordon. And he had a zoology lab. And he basically said to me on my first day, like, fill it. I'm like, are you are you kidding me? Like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to pay for any of the snakes. But if you get reptiles, you can keep them in this lab. So that was that was fun. Um, and I can honestly say I made a lot of the mistakes that people make when they're initially starting. I, I mean, when I look back at what I did then, I like I do a full body cringe. But this was back in the days of hot rocks and, you know, you keep all your snakes at like 85 to 90 degrees and, you know, all that kind of jazz. But, um, but yeah, I had a very eclectic collection. It was basically whatever animal I was reading about or learning about, that's the animal I got. So I really got into monitor lizards. I had some pythons, lots of colubrids. Um, and then when I went to grad school, I kind of backed off on the keeping because I was in the field so much and I didn't have time. And then I didn't really get back into herpetoculture until uh, we ended up with the major at West Liberty, the zoo science and applied conservation major. We're literally teaching you know, people herpetoculture with that major. And so, you know, I did a head first swan dive back in and I am where I am now. So there you go. So let's talk about that. What exactly would a degree in herpetoculture mean? Well, it's not necessarily a degree in herpetoculture. Uh, but it's it's we have a major at West Liberty. It's called the Zoo Science and Applied Conservation Major, and there's a handful of people that have the Zoo Sci, you know, or sorry, handful of universities that have a Zoo Science degree. But ours is very unique because you get to actually do hands-on work with animals in a lab. And so for this major, it's basically the major if you want to work in a zoo um, and you want to get a job relatively quickly out of college, this major kind of prepares you for that. It doesn't just prepare you though to work in a zoo. It prepares you to work for like Fish and Wildlife Service, so one of their captive breeding facilities, and they have them as well, um, to do stuff in the private sector. Uh, it prepares you to work for any kind of conservation agency. Um, so yeah, that's what the major does. But I teach the class called Herpetology and Herpetoculture, and it's like I, I have to pinch myself when I think about this class, because my 19 year old self would have like passed out with nothing but happiness and joy that I get to change it. Because the lecture part is all evolution and natural history of reptiles and amphibians. It's global, it's the whole kit and caboodle. And then the lab is a mixture of field conservation and then herpetoculture. So like in a traditional herpetology class, you might learn like all the reptiles and amphibians of the state that the college you're taking the class is in. Uh, for the class that I'm teaching, like we have a three-hour lecture on light. Um, so we go over UVB, UVA, UVC, all the different light bulbs, how to put a light fixture in, why why you use this light fixture versus this light fixture, which animals 
see UVB, which animals don't see UVB, what happens physiologically. So it's like a deep dive into all that stuff. I want to take this class. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So have you and already it, taught it or is it your yeah. first time teaching in the fall? I taught it in the fall last year. And then we also have a graduate degree in zoo science. And I taught the graduate version last spring. Um, but it's, what are the differences? Sorry. What was that? What are the differences between the undergraduate? Um, the undergrad one has the field conservation component. The grad one is just uh, husbandry and natural history. Basically, I guess since you mentioned it, we might as well get into the weeds on it. Uh, UV, UVB, obviously a lot of people do not use UV lights, especially for mm -hmm. snakes. So can you give us a little overview on UV and kind of uh, where you deem it necessary, where you deem it unnecessary? Well, first, no one flame. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have to drop the hard line. So I know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to draw a hard line because of science, because that's what I am. But I would make an argument that there's really not a situation where it doesn't at least help a little bit. Like if you can give them the UVB, you just should. It's, it's that simple. Um, and the reason for that is if you kind of dive into the literature on UVB radiation and whether or not the snakes need in particular, uh, there's been plenty of studies within the past decade where people, I mean, these are very simple straightforward experiments where you have a set of corn snakes. It's almost always corn snakes, ball pythons, Burmese pythons. You have a group that you're keeping without the UV, UVB. You have a group that you're keeping with the UVB. And then you look at their blood chemistry after you know X number of days. And in every situation, when you give them the UVB, the blood chemistry is different. And the blood chemistry with the UVB is more indicative of what you would see in a snake out in the woods. So... You know, I'm not saying that if you don't use UVB, it goes straight to hell and you suck. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is the science clearly demonstrates that if you want your snakes to be living a life closer to what they're living in nature, and granted, I know they're living in a box, so that becomes kind of difficult. But at least at a physiological level, you give them that UVB, you're doing nothing but helping them. The problem with UVB, though, is you can actually give too much. Um, and that's where, like, a UVB, uh, there, there's high dosage UVB bulbs, low dosage UV, UVB bulbs. So, you know, you get online, you learn a little bit about it, and you can pretty much dial that right in. But we've done some experiments at West Lib. Um, in the herpetology class that I, I was talking about, everybody has to do a class project. And that's why we have the animals that we have. And uh, we had a student look at UVB with Brettles pythons. We have two male Brettles and three female Brettles. And so um, she basically took pictures underneath an LED light of their scales. So we looked at the light balance with the camera, made sure everything was equal. And then she took a picture with scales. And we did that, that when they weren't under UVB light. And we did that when they were under UVB light. And what clearly, clearly was demonstrated is that there's, they actually changed the coloration of their scales a little bit. Um, and they're basically becoming lighter in the presence of UVB, they're getting rid of melanin, which would mean that, that you could argue that that might be a mechanism for them to absorb more of that radiation. So um, if you've evolved a mechanism like that, it's doing something. You don't just do that for the hell of it. So that's why I'm kind of on the persuasion of if you can give them the UVB, do it. And is there anything that suggests 
uh, a connection to like a longer lifespan if under UVB or we're not there yet? Um, there long-term studies that have been published don't exist, but there are definitely uh, people in the herpetoculture you know, side of things with zoos and um, universities that have absolutely noted longevity does increase with UVB. But the problem is it's really difficult to say this animal lived longer specifically because you gave it UVB. You know, many of the people that are giving animals UVB may also go way more into the diet and then they could be giving them a much better diet. And it could be that the diet's what's making them live longer than the UVB. So it gets really, you kind of go right. off into the weeds if you're trying to tease, right. tease that up. But that's the fun part of doing science is, you know, trying to figure out how the hell you could answer that question. So science is cool. Yeah. Obviously, you don't want too much of it. How can we monitor, you know, the levels too much, too little light cycle, all that type of thing? There's a thing called a solarometer. It's very expensive. Um, they're like 200 bucks a pop, but you can put them underneath the UVB light and it'll tell you uh, basically what level of UVB is present. And then for most of the commonly kept animals, there's all kinds of literature available. Most of it's free online that basically lets you know where on this thing called the Ferguson scale, um, your reptile is. So something like a bearded dragon has a very high Ferguson number, something like a uh, central or um, so with a crested gecko, which does, there's some evidence that nocturnal geckos even use UVB. Um, it would need a very low amount of UVB light. So yeah, you just go online and, and find that information. It's actually relatively easy to do. But very few people I bet are about to go buy yeah. to a Malara. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it's difficult because you know, I'll fully admit when I first got into this, I thought, okay, I go buy the UVB light and I'm I'm good to go. I'm saving the day. And then I go and buy the UVB light and I learn that these that UVB radiate, we don't see it. So there's there's a light bulb there, but the light that's being emitted is just so you know that, you know. The light bulb's working, but as time goes on, the UVB slowly but surely diminishes. And uh, you think the light's on, it's giving it UVB. Well, in reality, you got to change these light bulbs out every six months, but the lights may not burn out until they're like eight, nine months old. So it's the, kind of an imperfect system in that regard. And then there's there's been instances where you get a UVB light bulb and they actually start cranking out more UVB as they get older, which is really bizarre. So then you, you start and the animals in this like perfect little window and everything's good. And then over time, you're like irradiating its retinas with this UVP, which is not good. So um, it's not just as simple as putting the light bulb in. Uh, you, you do have to kind of know these tricks to the trade to, to make sure you're doing it right. And then there's coiled lights and there's um, basically tubes. Things that the UVB lights, UV lights, in general that are on the market right now are not unreliable. meeting the grade and are very <laughs> well, unreliable. One comp there, there are some that like the ZooMed lights are good. And then there's a, a company based out of Europe called Acadia and, and their lights are spot on. It's difficult for you to get Acadia lights uh, in North America though you can. Um, I think Reptile Basics actually sells them. I could be wrong, uh, but uh, but yeah, but some of the other companies, you know, no, they're, they're actually, they're, they're proving to be dangerous, actually. So it's kind of crazy. Hmm. 
So we have a bunch of people in the chat asking different things, but is there uh you know, like LED light that gives off UB or yeah. uh, UV? UVB. <laughs> um, no, uh, LEDs give off some forms of, of, you know, radiation, but they don't give off in the UVB spectrum. So you pretty much have to buy UVB bulb um, if you're going to try to get UVB. Now there's, there's things like mercury vapor lights. They give off both heat and UVB. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of freak out a little bit with the heat part to the light bulb. So I like to use just like radiant heat panels or a heat panel um, and then have the UVB separate. Uh, because no, that doesn't mean you can do that. That's just what I do. Um, so there you go. Gotcha. And a lot of people you know, let their snakes out in the backyard and say, Hey, mm -hmm. I'm getting my snake in the sun and stuff. Is that enough? Is that effective? Eh. <laughs> um, I mean, you're giving it that radiation. Uh, you're also exposing it to all the viruses and, you know, everything's outside. Um, that being said, I don't know how much of a danger it is. If you take your snake out, you know, if you're weighing my snake's going to get a virus or it's going to get some UVB radiation, obviously. The UVB is probably, you know, better for it, but um, you can give it, it's going to get some radiation, but it may not necessarily get enough to see that blood chemistry shift the way that we know they do. So, well, and for things like lizards, definitely a worthy, you know, objective for turtles and tortoises. We have red-footed tortoises in our collection at West Liberty, um, and they go outside and they roam not freely, but we have like, we plop the tortoise down and then there's an undergraduate about five feet behind it. And they just follow it around the quad for about an hour, hour and a half. And we do that every other day. And that's how we get them, you know, their UVB. So. Gotcha. So is there anything else that, I mean, why do you think that UV isn't widely accepted by snake people. And then there's also this turn to, I know some monitor people are saying that you can just supplement instead of providing UV as well. I, I, I feel like it's kind of a, a question of convenience. So if you're keeping animals in racks, it's very difficult to light a rack. I mean, we all have racks. Think about lighting that thing. Um, and, and there are things like freedom breeders and, and different racks where you have the window panel. Uh, but the problem is if you have the window panel and you put the UVB light outside, the UVB radiation doesn't make it through the panel. It's, it has to make direct contact on the skin of the animal. So um, it's probably just a question of convenience. Uh, and that's really the main reason. I mean, it's not easy to light a rack. Now, if you have something like a PVC enclosure, you know, then you can add U UVB radiation relatively quickly. And we've actually uh, done that at West Liberty with many of our tanks. Uh, we use animal plastic as they made all of our enclosures for us. And, you know, it's been relatively forward and simple. Just pop a hole in the back and fix it. So, okay. And I know, I know some people think that, Hey, I have my snake in front of a window. It gets there, it's but obviously it. double paint windows. <laughs> I mean, that's why, you know, all the UV is getting filtered out. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, now, hold on. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. 
I feel like I'm about to lose you. So I'm going to talk and we'll see if it survives. Um, <laughs> um, if you, this is actually interesting. If you put a snake by a window, uh, they will, you know, they're not going to get UVB radiation uh, and that's not going to happen, but they are going to absolutely pick up the sunlight, which is better than a light bulb. And they will totally dial in to that photo period of the sun. And we've noticed even at West Lib in our snake lab that uh, snakes that in enclosures that get sunlight behave differently than the ones that don't get sunlight. And they will, because we have video cameras on all of our animals. And so you see them kind of like, I'm going to go over to the corner because the sun's hitting us now. No UVB is going through the, the uh, window, but that those photons indicative of the sun are. And those snakes act very differently than the animals that just get, you know, Heat lamp on, heat lamp off, heat lamp on, heat lamp off. So it's, it's cool stuff. Is there some type of like basking behavior that will happen from natural sunlight that doesn't happen under the bowl? Um, I have, I don't know the answer to that emphatically, but I will say that our guys will move to the side of the enclosure. They get the chance to be under sunlight or just a heat lamp. It's always sunlight. And these are um Reynolds pythons. Yeah. So they were the ones that were over there near the wind, near the sun. So, mm -hmm. and that's an animal from central yeah. Australia that I'm sure. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. they see oh, temperatures, but. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So. I mean, we'd all choose sunlight over <laughs> lamp, right? There's something. Yeah. I mean, there's just the something feels... on a very obvious level that like nature yes. is nature, and we can't replicate it for whatever reason. Yes, and, and it's it, it, like sun. Well. The other thing is, if you think about how complex nature is, and then you try to replicate that in a four by two by two PVC box, like, you know, we, we're just simply doing the absolute, or I, I hope we're all trying to do the absolute best that we can, given the conditions that we have. And, and the goal should be for our animals to thrive, not just thrive. So that's why, you know, I personally do everything I can to give them UVB and substrates they can dig into and, you know, basically replicate what I see when I'm out in the field doing what I do. Yeah. So that's a big thing that probably just kind of started once the ball pythons took off, but sterile, oh. like completely sterile enclosure. I guess zoos used to do it as well back in the day, but mm -hmm. um, do you have any experience with keeping sterile or keeping bioactive or somewhere in between? Uh, well, I, I tried doing the sterile thing and I, I actually didn't like it because it was just disgusting. Like when snakes crap on newspaper, if we've all experienced that, you, know, they, you have that liquid part, the urates come out, it just fans out across the enclosure. When you use substrates, oftentimes the absorptive nature of the mulch or something like that is going to kind of isolate that. And then you can do the spot cleaning piece. Spot cleaning is when the snakes defecate with the mulch, and then you got that pile of poo. And basically we remove the bile poo and then you remove like all the substrate about two inches around it. And then you put in new mulch. And then if you go a little bit bioactive, you can throw in um, the springtails. Uh, you can also throw in things like, um, I just forgot, superworms. Um, and you can actually have a raging superworm colony in your snake enclosure if you have uh, mulch. And they will act, as soon as the snakes go to the bathroom, a lot of times superworms come up, they'll feed on a lot of that organic material and then they go to the bathroom, they introduce 
bacteria to the mix that kind of helps neutralize everything. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I keep false water cobra. When those things go to the bathroom, they crap like toddlers. I mean, it's, it's gross. Uh, and so I wanted something that could deal with it when I wasn't in my office or I was away on a trip. Um, and so I do a semi-bioactive, uh, you know, technique and it seems to work really well. Um, so what, keeping is the, the down. So. what is the balance there between like the ease for the keeper and the actual benefit that the animal gets? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the benefits from the substrate could simply be more for the keeper than the animal. If you really think about it, it depends on the type of snake. It obviously if it's a snake that's fossorial and it goes underground, giving it the ability to do that's going to be nothing but good. Um, but if you have a snake that's just going to be up on top of the substrate, uh, you, the keeper, kind of get the benefit of this animal just went to the bathroom. Now I don't have to find newspaper and clear out everything and you know, start again. I can just remove this one piece. And then obviously about once every two or three months, you know, the whole thing gets dumped and you put in more substrate. So, yeah, but I... I I definitely do mulch with all of our stuff at Whistlip. See, I think because people do the variety, I, I feel like it's more of what the keeper. Yeah, yeah the because snake. I think often we see in herpetoculture in general, what we're doing is making, you know, making it possible for us to keep large amounts of animals in small yeah. amounts of spaces and then saying mm -hmm. that that's what the animal wants because that justifies <laughs> our, our exactly. wants. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I always try to kind of dissect why we do things because to figure out what's really for the animal and what's really just convenient for us. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. One of my grad students, her thesis is looking at um, basically it's at looking at does it matter the sterile versus naturalistic with snakes. Uh, and so what, what she's doing is we bought animal plastic T25 enclosures, which are big enclosure. They're six foot uh, long, two foot wide, and about 18 inches tall. And then we got a divider that we put right in the middle. So we have two big vivariums. And then we went to great lengths to equalize temperature to make sure the temperature in both sides is exactly the same in the same spots. Because snakes are going to choose, they could choose where they want to be based off the temperature. And then what we did is we have one side of this enclosure that's completely naturalistic. It's got two hides, mulch, cork tubes, um, a top hide that we actually screwed into the top of the enclosure. And then on the other side of that divider, there's newspaper and two hides and a water bowl. There's a water bowl over on the naturalistic side. And so you know, I've heard tons of people argue back and forth. You go to Facebook and you get into any of the reptile groups and this topic comes up and it can get just hostile yeah. quickly so yeah. being that i'm a scientist i was like let's just let the snakes answer the damn question so um what we did is we have four of these enclosures so we're not like putting one animal in and letting that one animal determine what all corn snakes think we have four corn snakes uh two males two females and we introduce them and the way we introduce them um is we put two of them in the sterile enclosure first and two of them in the naturalistic enclosure first. Then we have a video camera on them and then we just are basically letting them do whatever the heck they want to do in there. I said corn snakes. We're going to do corn snakes in the future using false bark over now. So uh, we're in the middle of that study, but it's been really, really cool because 
we can just go back and watch this video footage and actually see, you know, how are they using it? And I can say, you know, it's preliminary. We don't have a complete data set, all that science goffity gook. But when you watch the water cobras, yeah, they are, three of the four are on the naturalistic side pretty much all the time. They will go to the sterile uh, and they usually go over there for a very short period of time and then they turn right around and go back to the naturalistic side. Uh, they're sleeping in the naturalistic side in their hides. Uh, they are eating in their natural, like everything's naturalistic. But there's one animal that's hanging out in the sterile side of things. So the interesting thing here is, you know, I look at this and I kind of laugh to myself because everybody's like, it's got to be this or it's got to be that. And in reality, even the animals have variation within them. So, but overwhelmingly for this species of snake, it seems to be favoring the naturalistic. And that's been going on now for about two weeks. So um, it's hard though, playing devil's advocate here. Yep. Uh, like you said earlier, it, in so many snake like research things it's so hard to isolate like what yep. is variable so like in this naturalistic everyone's naturalistic is not the same everyone's not yep. using that same plant or the same bedding or you know whatever so it's like is it just what what is like, making them comfortable what, in that environment right. and i don't to... know if it'll ever be possible and... to completely unless you have six different naturalistic ones that you know, you're isolated. Okay, this point, you know, you'd have to get so like, uh, like crazy obsessed OCD. I yes. feel like to ever. Well, that's what that's kind of your whole pursuit. But it's like is next, to find out that's what next that is. level. That's so. <laughs> but like trying all these different plants or all these different substrates or all like I don't know. <laughs> well, well, that's why we limited everything to just mulch, cork bark tubes. You know, it was all like standard culture materials. Um, and, and that's why, because we were trying, what we were really doing is we were trying to replicate herpetoculturists, not necessarily the snakes, see which approach do you see, you know, the, the best, I shouldn't have said best, but an outcome that is positive for the snakes. Um, we're gonna do this with corn snakes, barons racers, and then the one that I am like most excited about, so everybody's head can blow up, which is ball pythons. So. <laughs> you should put a tree in there and make sure uh -huh. church or something. Yeah, take pictures. And, and we're also looking at their behavior during um, day and night because one of the things I recommend to everybody listening, if you have the ability to put a camera in your snake room so that you can watch the snakes when you're not in there, it's like fascinating how much they are aware of your presence. And when you are not in there, they're like, all right, no one's in here gawking at me. I'm going to actually start moving. And then someone goes in there and they, you know, your, your room, and then suddenly they stop moving. Others only move when you go in there because they know this thing equals food. So I should, you know, come up and interact with it so I can get some food. Uh, but no, that's, that's been one of the, the coolest things about what we've done. Uh, or at least the most fun for me is to just watch the video feed. I geek out every night and, you know, I'm going through my phone, looking at the Nest Cam, seeing what they were That's doing. That's the thing I worry about. I want one, but I <laughs> this one. Yeah. would literally sit there for hours while we're yes, like eating dinner or something. Just watch. Mm -hmm. Even though they're just right upstairs, but the, obviously the camera's different. I think he would just they, sit there. They all already do different things, despite that, yeah. like, 
90% of our collection being corn snakes, they mm -hmm. are truly, you know, individuals. And so oh, yeah, they absolutely camera are. all the time. You would all like, I'm nervous to get one. Do you think that, <laughs> okay, you know, just... that, that, that animal that is attentive when you come in for food? I mean, is that a sign of intelligence? The fact that they've, you know, they kind of think of you as someone who gives them food? It, it, it's a sign of conditioning. I can definitely say that. Uh, it, it shows that those animals know this stimulus equates to food and food is good, which means I get to live another month, two months. Uh, the intelligence thing, you end up going down rabbit holes uh, and it inevitably leads to arguments. But, um, you know, I, I can say this. We have a very eclectic collection at West Liberty. So we have pythons and bluebirds and um, single boa. Uh, but without question, some of them are far more, show more in behaviors indicative of intelligence uh, than others. But the ones that don't show intelligent behaviors, that might just be an anthropomorphism because we don't think the Borneo short-tailed python that sits there all day is very yeah. smart. Meanwhile, when you actually are around those snakes and you start spending time with them and you pick up on their very subtle nuances, you realize very quickly, like, there's a whole lot more going on up there than most people give them credit for it so and i'm sure yeah. doing that it's displaying mm -hmm. that behavior for a reason i'm sure that's a very yeah. nice snake that you know in order to survive they're being hidden and they're staying still. yeah exactly right. i yeah. agree the the term intelligence in snakes it's that and it's always loaded uh that word mm -hmm. and uh what's the other one that makes me mad or uh what is it uh Shit. I don't know. I can't help you. For extra correct, like uh, when you put shit in there, and they call it a uh, oh enrichment. Yes, yeah. that word and intelligence are like Ooh, the witches. buzzwords for snakes lately, and I feel like there's such a wide range of like what that means to everyone, and I feel like we all need oh, to come yeah. together on like a definition. Well, because or, some like, people will be like, oh, I moved this rock over here, enrichment. I moved yeah. this over there. Oh, right. I put a pen in there and right. Me. Also, ooh, the snake raised its head. It's intelligent. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, by definition, anything you add to the enclosure that makes the animal engage mentally is considered enrichment. Uh, for a real long time, uh, there was a form of enrichment known as negative enrichment, and zoos used to do this back in the early two thousands, where they would take things like uh, bobcat pee or something like a predator, and then they would put it in the snake's enclosure, and the end result is like the snakes start moving because, you know, the run snake's like, life. damn, so I'm rich. about to die. So, <laughs> uh, so practice up. Yeah, they're not done anymore. Uh, or, well, I'm not going to say they're not done anymore, I'm, but they're not done as often. How about that? Or very rarely done. You talk to Ari or some of your two, Riley or someone like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, with enrichment, though, and snake intelligence, that's actually one of the really fun things that we're doing at West Lib with the Zeus I major. Uh, because one of the big things with zoos is target training. You like try to target train an animal, and that basically means you you present them some kind of something, uh, and then they come up and they tap it or or you know do some kind of behavior in response to it. And uh, so I was reading a paper, like a journal article, and it just said like it was a one-liner in the journal article that at some herpterium, they didn't say zoo, they said herpterium in Florida, they had target trained their false water cobras 
to come up for food. And I was like, what the hell is this? So I tried to like find the reference and track it down. I couldn't. And false water cobras are without question my absolute favorite snake. And we have an overabundance of them at West Liberty because they're my favorite snake. So, <laughs> so I had a little uh, juvenile that I just got in March and I thought I'm gonna try to target train it. We're just gonna see what'll happen. Um, and it, you know, to target train an animal, you need an animal that has an incredible food response and false water cobras have one of the most ridiculous responses to food, especially when they're young, uh, that you could hope for. So they were kind of perfect for it. So I actually did this with one of the animals at my house. So I went upstairs and I got a Nerf dart from my son's bedroom and I put it on the end of a stick and I glued it there and I would basically wiggle the dart in the you know, tub and the falsy would come out and investigate it. And as soon as he would touch it, I would introduce the mouse and then he would come over and eat the mouse. And I thought it was going to take this snake at least 20 times to realize the dart equals food. And I also thought, what the hell are you doing, Zach? This is the dumbest thing ever. There's no way a snake can be target trained. But I was doing it by myself, so nobody knew it was going down all's well. Um, and I'm not kidding you. The, the third time I introduced the dart, the, um, the snake shot out from the back of the enclosure, tapped the end of the dart, and then immediately turned its head to the right to look for the mouse. I was like, whoa, this actually happened? Like, there's no way. This is just you know, coincidence. And so I did it again. And sure enough, the snake comes flying out, hits the dart. And I, you know, looks to the right for the mouse. But then I got cocky and was like, all right, I target trained a snake. I have the smartest snake in all of America. And then the next time I did it, the snake darted out, grabbed the dart, ripped it off the end of the stick and then almost ate it. Yep. So, yeah. And, you know, so like, what's going on there? Is this, did he, did he learn dart equals mouse? Did he, just see that stimuli and think dark, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but, but that's the fun part about doing, you know, approaching your collection in this way. It makes you, you think a little bit differently uh, about them. So speaking of falsies, um, Ryan in the chat asked, how does Westlib feel about rear fang being used in a program? He says, you know, some places like are iffy on barons and falsies. The way that we view that is we obviously would never have a viper or an elapid or anything like that. Um, with the with the rear fang snakes, uh, students are only allowed to interact with them when I'm there or our animal care coordinators there. And the nice thing about false water cobras is if you we've got the gloves that you wear if you're you know, going to be messing with monitor lizards and things like that. So if a kid's wearing a sweatshirt and they've got the gloves on, they're basically, it would take one hell of a false water cobra to bite them and actually get the fangs in, into them. Um, and plus, with false water cobras, bite you, they have to gnaw on you in order for you to have the reaction. But yeah, that's the deal with the, with the falsies. We have, fall, we have with those, we have Bear and I, um, and then we have uh, Oruna maculata, which are Musaranas. So... But the thing I, you know, the other retort I come to with that is, you know, have you seen the pictures of what a hognose snake bite looks like? Uh, and we have hognose snakes, but of all those, the one that's caused the most medically significant bite um, are actually Western hognose snakes, which is kind of crazy. Those are the ones that I boop Add on it. the snoot. Add actually. It. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just booping on the snoot. 
add it to my list yeah. of reasons why I don't like Hognos. Mm -hmm. Just gives me more uh, ammo. <laughs> yep. The worst. Yeah, talk about reaction when you walk into a room. Ours is just, and then you just hear him yeah. knock his head on the like side he of boots the. His, yeah. Boots his own snoot. Yeah, he boops his own snoot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. I could probably target train one of those, huh? Yeah, give it a go. They like to hit. It has things. to be like one of the dumbest snakes I've ever <laughs> worked yeah. with, to be honest. <laughs> I like to think of them as fun loving. So, oh. you know, they're kind of like endearing in a. Yes, yeah. in a very dumb way. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I love them. They're actually one of my favorites. So, um, moving on. Uh <laughs> well, I want to talk oh. a little bit more about like enrichment in an enclosure. So, yeah. Up to now, I mean, say you have something. Say a corn snake. They'll typically, you know, they will use everything as far as they will burrow, they will climb, they will use every part of an enclosure that you give them. What would be your typical, you know, recommendations as far as enrichment and kind of substrate setup for something like a corn snake? Uh, well, for that class, I had to do a lot of reading <laughs> to get back in the game when it came to herpetoculture. So this is not, you know, my idea, but there's an idea that Europeans use a lot where it's basically the rule of thirds, which is if you're going to go for the enrichment, uh, you know, angle with your snake, um, or any reptile, that you should basically split the enclosure up into the bottom third, the middle third, and the top third, and make sure there's something in each of those for the snakes or lizards or whatever to interact with. Uh, and so you can do the bottom third with just substrate, which enables them to go down and burrow into it, or have substrate in work too. And then you can do the middle third by branches and a hide box. I can get on top of the hide box and go underneath the hide box. On um, the top third, you just make sure your branches up to that point, or you put a, a, a vertical hide. Um, Reptile Basic sells this little mount where you can take those black hide boxes that you see on, you know, in herb shows and Amazon, that, and you can actually slide them into the top of the enclosure. And our animal care coordinator, Kinsey, she she bought some, uh, and we put them in the enclosure, and we are like shocked at the number of snakes that will go up. And use those like we, we put them in with our barons racers which you totally expect they're semi-arboreal they live up top no biggie uh but when we put them in every single one of them went up there um then we put them in they're in those enclosures with water cobras which nobody thinks of water cobras as arboreal i certainly don't and you know i think two or three of the four were up in those arboreal hides within 10 minutes of them realizing they were there so you can do you know fun stuff like that as well and i'm certain you give those to a carpet python you know, they're almost certainly going to go up up top so oh yeah and we have friends that keep morelia as far as uh, i think owen mcintyre has his rough scale python he has one yeah. on top and it's weird because i see my corn snakes now they're on top of their yeah. hide and mm -hmm. stuff like that and it seems that i don't know because using the word arboreal for something that's only you know 12 inches high to begin with maybe a little <laughs> bit of a stretch <laughs> So yeah. I'm wondering how much of that is that we're just not actually giving them, you know, actual yeah. height. If you give them the height, they'll 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 use it. Yeah, that's what. So one of the one of my favorite things about our major is we have a zoo science room. So we have a couple like legit zoo style, six foot tall by four foot deep, you know, by five foot wide enclosures like you would see at any of the big zoos, and we put the brettles pythons in there 
And what was amazing is they went straight to the top of that all the time until they need, they need to shed. And then they come down and they soak in the great big water basin we have, and then they shed, and then they go back up to the top of the trees. And if you learn about their natural history, if you read about them in the complete carpet python, you know, or in the lit scientific literature, they're known for living up in trees. Like that's where they, they want to be. So I'm certain if you doesn't matter how much it is, if you give them something, they'll use it. And, and that's that whole surviving thriving thing. So. Absolutely. And I mean, to speak on that for always, and I guess, you know, for a long time, probably still is our indication of a snake that's well kept is that it reproduces. Um, and yeah. human, I mean, it's pretty damn easy to reproduce. So <laughs> yeah. um, is that a good indicator of health and longevity, basically, in a snake? They're a sign that you're keeping it correctly? I mean, if it's reproducing, yeah, obviously, that's definitely a good indicator. Um, but the other thing... Longevity is a weird one, though, because you can have a snake that reproduces great and then it dies when it's eight or 10 years old. And if you study snake natural history and you actually read these papers that are called odd ecology papers, most snakes that have been studied long term and we put transmitters on them and we've you know, followed them over time, uh, most of those guys have lifespans that are in the like. 15, 20, 25, even 30, 35 year range. So when, when we're keeping snakes and we feel like we've done something great and it's lived to be eight and then it's dead, you know, there's obviously something, you know, there's an issue there. And what's causing that is all, it, that that's, that's why we do science. Um, we all can kind of figure out what's going on there. A lot of people talk about overfeeding and I think we do that. Um, but then again, other, I think that's also a species by species case because there's not all snakes are created equal, uh, and, and many of us know that, obviously, but um, yeah. I always That's wondered that, you know, obviously for a human, we say, if we go to the gym, <laughs> you know, we're going to build muscle. If we don't, yeah. we're going to atrophy and we're going to yeah. lose muscle. So therefore, if you have a snake in a sterile enclosure, how is it building its muscles? Yeah, it, well, it's probably not, and it's it's turning into like, the thing we saw in Wally that was zooming around, like that's what our snakes are going to end up like. So, <laughs> but then the million, the million dollar question becomes like, how do you give a snake exercise? Um, what? And then there's also species of snakes though that just don't move. I mean, that's they evolve to sit there. That's that's kind of what what, life. what 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 they do. So, I don't think there's like a a holistic one approach. I think you just basically have to know a little bit about a lot and know, all right, this animal, we need to keep it this way, X, Y, and Z, this X, Y, and Z. So like, if you're going about, key, all right, so the two snakes that, that I have in my collection, I have Borneo short-tailed pythons and I have Vietnamese blue beauty snakes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you cannot keep those things the same. Um, I, the, the blue, beauty snake, blue beauty snakes will never weigh as much as the Borneos, but I want the blue beauty snakes to have the biggest enclosure I possibly can because they're just out cruising all the time. Um, I actually gave the Borneos a really big enclosure, and then they sat in the corner, you know, where the substrate was good, the humidity was right, and where they were happy. So, you know, I, I don't feel bad keeping the Borneos in a smaller enclosure, uh, even though by mass they will – massively outweigh the blue beauties but i i do want to make sure that those blue beauties have the biggest 
baddest enclosure they possibly can because their life history and natural history is very different. So now I get to ask the very controversial question. Is a Borneo oh, short tail better equipped <laughs> to be in a tub? What? <laughs> All right. That's a great question. I keep my Borneos in PVC enclosures. I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I've listened to a lot of people say yeah, they, they, they strike the glass and they do that. And yeah, I've experienced that without question. But over time, they stopped. And now my Borneos are, are in PVC enclosures. Um, they're feeding and growing and, you know, they're, they're doing well. So, but that, those are my three. I'm not going to make a blanket statement. I got respect for the people that do it and they're, they have their collections and they're rolling. You know, it works. Great example of the tub thing. We had a pair of Timor pythons at West Lib and you know, got them in. I kept them in a quarantine tub in Iraq. Um, they were doing great. I moved them into a naturalistic setup. Was convinced this was the greatest thing on ever, you know, ever for them. Both of them immediately went off food. Um, they got hyper defensive, pulled them out, put them in the rack, and they started eating again. They gained weight. So, like, that's a great example of you just have to think about the individual snake and, and what's going on. And every time I tried to move those things to that naturalistic setup twice, and both times they went off food and now they're just in the tub. Like, that's where they will stay. You know, and it, it seems like know. things like like Timors and scrubs just straight up hate humans. So the least amount of <laughs> yeah. human, the better. Yeah. Yep. And, and we have we definitely have. I mean, everybody that that's kept a large snake collection probably has that animal that just lives in the tub. Um, one of the snake species that I keep are um, uh, I don't know their common name. Oreocryptophis something pulchra, the bamboo rat snakes, um, the little guys, and uh. They're in tubs with about two inches of mulch and sphagnum, and, and, and they're thriving. I couldn't even begin to imagine pulling them out of those tubs uh, because they're a fossorial snake. That's, that, but that's a case where the tub setup matches the natural history and the biology of the animal in question. These animals live in substrate in China, in China where they occur, Vietnam. Um, so if that's what they would be living in there and you replicate it, then great. You know, you, you just have to do a little bit of research. That's all. Yeah. I always thought that it was interesting that we are notoriously bad at keeping fossorial snakes, even though we tend to have, you know, this method that seems perfect for them in a dark yeah. tub, but we can't keep a ring neck snake or anything or a blind yeah. snake or anything crazy. When I was in college, I kept ring neck snakes, but my soul died a little bit every time I fed them because they ate salamanders. So... I was feeding them redback salamanders. Then when I was in graduate school, I learned that some of those redback salamanders were probably like 30 or 35 years old. And then I just felt like the worst human on earth that I was, you know, sacrificing them for my stupid <laughs> interest at the time. But anyway. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know, by the way, that, and we find like redback salamanders, that's obviously like the most common yeah. thing we find. But so how long does it take for them to reproduce and how long do they live? Oh, redbacks live a very long time. Yeah. Um, just because it's small doesn't mean it's a baby. I've been saying that forever. Um, they, I don't know what age they reach sexual maturity, but I absolutely know that that genus of salamander, Plethodon, they can easily make it into the 15, 20, 25, 35 year range. 
so yeah, they're, no, they're they're longer lived than we we think they are. That is crazy, but it brings me to a another point as far as diet. I mean, what have you guys been doing as far as diet goes? Especially at the university, you have such options, you know. Yeah, I bet money is maybe a little bit less of an option. Yeah, or, you get or... to truly do that very diet that we as keepers, you know, always preach and talk about. But like with university money, you get to yeah. do that. So what kind of things are you guys offering? Uh, yeah, we, we try to vary the diet as much as possible at West Lib. Rodents, chicks, quail, you know, and with rodents, rats, mice, and, and all the different sizes. Um, we also have done some stuff with Reptilinks, which are, you know, mm-hmm. that's a fantastic product. Um, we had some Boiga that were problematic, and we were able to get them to eat with the gecko scent, I think, on pinkies. So, uh, yeah, we, we haven't dove much into, like, that type of science, but anybody out there listening that wants to come and do that, come do it, uh, because that you have to have a very specific background, and we actually have a couple professors that have that background. You know, I, my background is I, I was trained how to flip rocks, so and catch what's <laughs> under the rocks. Um, so uh, you know, we need somebody that can pull the blood chemistry out and look at the impact of diet on that. And, and we have those people at West Lib and they actually, we're going to start doing that work probably spring of next year is what we're hoping for. So, so how big is the current undergrad program? It's one of the biggest majors on campus. Um, when we're a small school, we have about 2,500 students. And of that 2,500 student, of those 2,500 students, about a hundred 10 to 150 are ZUSI majors. So it was a huge shock to my system because I was used to teaching the same like 15 kids for the duration of their time at this little liberal arts school in Northern West Virginia. And then we had this major and it's really kind of taken off. Um, But, you know, as the nice thing about West Liberty is as we've gotten the students, a lot of times universities will tell you, you know, just keep teaching more. And granted, I had a tremendous teaching load last spring, but you know, we we have hired other professors and those professors came out of the zoo world, which is nice uh, because, you know, full disclosure, I did not come from the zoo world. I'm the con- I'm the applied conservation side of things. And I'm now doing the, the herpetoculture thing. But, you know, we have two professors that are zoo based. And then we have our animal care specialist. That's basically like our curator who takes care of all our animals. And then, um, a whole bunch of undergrads and now the grad students that are there so yeah it's a lot of fun overall it seems like you have like an affinity for rear fang stuff mm-hmm. obviously you have false water cobras boyga and you know knows <laughs> you were interested in as well so what yeah. is your kind of fascination with rear fang stuff i really like the fact that it's an in it's not as perfect a venom delivery strategy as a viper or an elapid. Like a cobra bites something, it's dead. <laughs> a you know a, a viper bites something that venom's going to get into it. If it, if it lands the bite, and you know, we're good to go. These rear fanged um, species, they've got to grab the prey item and then they got to chew on it. And then the way that they give the venom, the venom comes out of the ducts is is unique in its own way. And then since it's not perfect, a lot of these things are also using constriction. They're using engulfing. That's what 
indigos do. It's basically where you like grab the prey item and it's kicking and trying to get out and you're just trying to swallow at the same time. Um, some of these things will grab their prey, bash it off stuff. And then meanwhile, they're envenomating it. I mean, if you're the prey item, it's like the worst way to go ever. Uh, but I don't know what it is about that, but I've just always kind of found that to be really, really interesting. And then the other thing is, and this is, I'm going to get real nerdy now, but evolutionarily rear fanged, that rear fang condition has popped up multiple times across the snake, um, you know, the snake phylogeny or, or you know, whatever, uh, tree of life of snakes. Um, so uh, that just is fascinating to me. So when, when my approach to keeping snakes and having snakes has always been my, my nerdy fascination with natural history and evolution kind of drives what species I ultimately wanted to work with. Yeah. So, so what do you mean like that? Um, what do you mean by it popped up in different places? Oh, uh, well, it just evolved multiple times. So, like, if you we're going down a nerd rabbit hole Go now. For it. All right. <laughs> so, like, uh, vipers and elaphids and all those animals, you know, they have a common ancestor. They're what we call monophyletic. And then they basically spread out, you know, diversified. But you can trace it all back to one animal. When you look at uh, rear fang snakes, it, the genus Boiga, uh, the cat snakes that are in Malaysia, than false water cobras in South America. But they both are rear fang. So how that happened, why that happened, that just is, is really neat to me. And not that there's like someone studying that and I don't study that. It's just a nerdy fascination that I you know, find really, really interesting. Um, and so it's kind of driven what snakes that I keep. And for the record, most of the rear fang stuff, um, like the Boiga, are tech, they were, they are at my house. <laughs> they are not you know, at the university. Probably somebody listening that's going like, what the hell? Like, no, those are not, you know, at the school. Um, uh, but yeah, th that's what it is. And, and I've always liked oddballs. Um, the, I, I've never really got into any of the, like the snakes that people were keeping in mass. Um, I like them. Like I have carpet pythons, I have the short tails, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, my favorites to keep are the are the oddballs. So, so what is that? Obviously, most of the uh, things that are going to pertain to herpetoculture, you got to do probably most of your things on ball pythons and corn snakes. So yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you get your full of that. You're full of that. <laughs> well, the the fun thing is the herpetoculture I'm talking about is more the husbandry side of things. Um, and it's more the, the, the um, zoological approach to herpetoculture than necessarily the business, you know, industry hobby approach to herpetoculture. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but like I'm trying to figure out the better way to keep a snake if the Fish and Wildlife Service is tasked with breeding them in mass. You see, like that, that's kind of the approach that, that I'm, I'm going with. I'm not really trying to figure out how to make a better corn snake necessarily. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how to keep that better corn snake alive as long as possible. So that's what we do at West Living. Awesome. So Ryan in the chat asked a, a good question because of course this has got to come up, especially with people uh, in like in your profession. So yep. obviously you've talked a lot about natural animals and stuff like that, but some things that you work with say the false water cobra, they have things like lavender or the moose yeah. they have pie cool stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, are you interested in morphs? 
Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The only morph that I own is I do own a lavender false water cobra. Um, Good choice, though, if you're going to own one. Yeah. Yeah. I I have always liked nature's version. I like localities a lot. I think that's that's really cool. And I don't poo-poo on people that have morphs. I'm just not I've never really been into the into the morphs. Um and it's actually been like like I tried and tried and tried to find a very boring coastal carpet python. Like nothing fancy, just a coastal carpet python. And I went to four or five shows and I saw every derivation of a coastal you could possibly hope for except for what was in nature like there were thermals and tigers and grant like it was just all over the place so you know it's hard for me too to find the snakes that i'm looking for <laughs> because uh you know the breeders of the world have done a really good job making all these morphs so i think we no, got I'm a guy what was that i think we got a guy if you need a coastal i think eric yeah. has eric prides himself on having every locality as well as every line of coastal to mm-hmm. ever like exist gotcha so uh, there's there's a guy out there for you but but it's going to be hard to find one at a local reptile show yeah i mean yeah that that i mean yeah and then i'm based out of wheeling west virginia so i got the the pittsburgh show and the columbus show are the two shows that that i get so and obviously to buy things online but we may need to ask you, we're going to do Pittsburgh. We're not sure to do the Steel City Expo Wait, or there's another Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Expo. <laughs> um, the, the Hammer House show is like baby Hamburg. So it's just a smaller version of Hamburg. Uh, and that's, that's all. Take that as you that. Uh, the the Steel City show is it's it's in an isoplex. It's definitely more family oriented. With your corn snakes, you'd probably do really well there. But you'd probably do just as well as the Pittsburgh show. So, they, they, and and for the record, the if you go to the Steel City show, you're probably going to the Pittsburgh show. Like you know, but but they are your classic small reptile show. Cool. So have you? Did this kind of make you delve deeper into herpetoculture in general, like going to the shows and all that? Is that somewhat new to when you had to uh, teach this course? Well, when I, when I was given the task of teaching the course, um, I initially had a wicked case of imposter syndrome because I was like, I haven't done this for a real long time. Uh, I better get some animals like yesterday. So, you know, and I used that excuse with my wife, and it, <laughs> it didn't really work, but I, I tried. <laughs> so, anywho, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely did a deep dive, and um, have been to shows ever since I had to teach the course. I, actually, I started going to shows when we got the major. We ended up getting the major in uh, 2015, is when we started planning it. So that's when I knew I was going to teach this class. So I just started absorbing everything. And podcasts like your podcast have been real important because, you know, here I am, Mr. Academic. There's nothing out there in an academic world that I could grab that's equivalent to like real world keeper experience. Um, And I will fully admit that that real world keeper experience is really where herpetoculture is like that. I I got a couple books that I, I read and 
know, these were written by people with three PhDs and that degrees. And I read them and was like, A, I barely understand what the hell I'm reading. And B, did these people ever keep a snake? <laughs> it was this P value, that P value, this, that, and, you know, so that's, yeah, I started listening to, to podcasts and then I, I found the right avenue to get the journal articles and it ended up working out really well. And, you know, I've just been absorbing everything I can. So, yeah, I think that that's always interesting as far as uh, we obviously, you know, the hobby in general has gained a lot of hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. And though, no, some people maybe aren't meticulous enough and we draw conclusions yeah. someplace. So I think it's always fun uh, trying to dissect the hobby science from yes. actual things that are going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and the average keeper can do a lot. If you just start keeping records, like when you feed the animal, when they snake, when or when they snake, when they crap, <laughs> not snake, when they shed, um, uh, when what temperatures they're at, you know, just basic, basic uh, data. You can throw that into Excel and have graphs and suddenly, you know, answer all kinds of questions. Um, we have snakes that have gone off off feed or food and we've kept meticulous notes on them. And then we realize like when the barometric pressure drops, they stop eating for a week. So, and, but if you aren't keeping those notes, you would just be like, my snake's losing it. Why isn't it eating? And then their panic ensues and all that. And now we, we, we kind of, we realize that that's that's actually one of the snakes in my um collection i have these things called madagascar uh cat snakes um cat-eyed snakes or cat snakes malagasy uh, cat-eyed snakes malagasy cat-eyed snakes yeah uh, so the male the male was just stop eating i was like why are you stopping this you, you'll eat, 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 eat and then he goes off food for two or three weeks and then i was able to line up that he stops eating after every major storm that we have, you know, and I wasn't even trying to deduce that for, for that animal. I just was looking at something else and realized, Oh, there's a pattern here. So, you know, but, but that's just from note taking because I fed it on this day and he ate, I fed him on this day. He didn't eat. Now I'm going to figure out what stimuli is causing him not to eat. So, so I think that we know as hobbyists that barometric pressure pay, plays a role, but it's mostly, on the breeding side, you know, we say yeah. put them together during a storm, whatever, whatever. But like, that's obviously one factor that you want to pay attention to. But are there any other factors that maybe we aren't paying attention to that maybe we should? We pay attention to them. I don't know if we pay enough attention to it. photo period is a big one. Uh, the amount of light that's that's hitting an animal's retina because pretty much all vertebrates, there's all kinds of hormones that control a vertebrate. And when you reach sexual maturity and you have a breeding season, uh, you have to have something to regulate those hormones. And for most animals, it's not necessarily temperature, it's light, uh, especially animals that have like a winter and a summer. Not so much things along an equator, but when you get away from the equator. And so, you know, if you're roommating your snakes and you got the lights on, that is one confused animal. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I know I personally, uh, I had snakes in a, I was brumating snakes once and my wife of course didn't know I was brumating snakes. And so she flipped the light switch on in the room and those, they were actually corn snakes and went, you know, long story short, I got very few eggs. The, the clutches sucked. And 
I, I think that that could have been a contributing factor. I don't know if that was the factor, but you know, that's such a confused animal physiologically that you just got to think about it. So photo periods, one temperatures, another, um, I've heard in a lot of the podcasts I've listened to, it's kind of a well-accepted norm now that we're keeping things too, we were keeping things too hot. Uh, if, if you kind of cool things down a little bit, um, there's plenty of evidence that you keep things too warm. You're not going to get gamete production. You know, we all know that. So, uh, yeah, temperature is an important one. So just giving them as much variation as possible is super important. That's not just for snakes. That's for everybody. You know, dark frogs up to tortoises. So the teacher in me has to ask more <laughs> university questions. I know Joe is like, wants to no, do no, all no, snake things. But, um, okay, so as far as like your, I know it hasn't been going on that long, but like your average students, do you feel yeah. like there's a certain like, level like, like everyone kind of comes <laughs> it's a very niche major you know it's not like mine where it's just like education yours is very very yeah. special so do you feel like everyone kind of comes in knowing or do you feel like you have to like start day one like a corn snake is this my or, parents but, told me to be a biology <laughs> major so i am that is the hardest thing about this major um because we get students that come in and they're like i love bunnies Bunnies are the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And then we get students that come in and are like, you know, I have my own line of Python, which I actually have a student coming in this fall who has, he with his father has has a collection of like a couple hundred corn snakes. So when you have that spread of experience, what we've learned is that you just basically have to normalize everything and bring everybody back to center and say, you may have 200 corn snakes and you may love bunnies, but we're all going to come to the middle here. And your first semester in this degree, we're going to make sure you all learn the best practices um, possible. And what does happen is we have students that come in and like, they love it. This is the best thing ever. And then we have students that come in that have never really kept animals and they don't understand, and we all understand this, if you take care of animals, especially a collection of animals, like it is rinse, recycle, repeat. Yep. Get the poop, throw the poop away, put in new substrate, feed on wet, like, you know, the whole rigmarole. And, and they want to be like jumping on the back of a water monitor and wrestling like Steve Irwin. And we're not doing that. Like, that is a no-no. <laughs> we will never do that. So usually by the end of the semester, the first semester, there's – we have students that will be like, yeah, zoo size is not for me. And they don't leave the college. We have plenty of ecology majors and biology majors outside of ZUSI. And they just move over to there. Um, but yeah, that that's actually a, a, a good question. But the the kids that come in that like do dose that were docents at zoos, you know, they know exactly what they're getting into. Um, and the kids that maintained a decent reptile collection, they absolutely know what they're getting into. And obviously I you know, I lean heavily towards them. Um, so yeah, that's actually, that that's one of the most um, intriguing parts of this major is dealing with that spread of experience. And, and I'm sure that even the person who has a large collection, they may have some preconceived right, notions or habits. Right, you have the same oh, you're at, well, that's the, 
that's the problem we have with, with them is they come in wanting to do things their way and you got to do things our way. And with this major, the, the thing I haven't really talked about is we have the animal collection at West Liberty, not just to have it. Um, if you're going to get a job in the zoo profession, you have to have experience. Uh, and many times in a zoo, they care more about you having like impeccable experience than you having impeccable grades. Because if you don't know how to act around the tiger, it eats you. So, you know, that like animal experience is kind of important. That tiger so, doesn't care about your A pluses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, to that degree, all the kids that come in with the zoo sign major, they have to each semester put in 200 contact hours with our animal collection. So, and there's different levels. So, uh, you know, coming in, you're gonna work with the crested geckos. Um, and then once you get experience with those, you're going to work with you know, the, the more advanced snakes. And then when we have some large reptiles, too, we have a seven foot, 50 pound water monitor named Norbert, who's amazing. Um, but you don't get to work with Norbert on day one when you just got done telling me I love bunnies like that's not happening. So <laughs> um, but when you're a junior and you know how to act around Norbert because you've watched a whole bunch of people act around Norbert, the water monitor. You know, that's when you get to work work with, with the water monitor. So it, it, it's definitely, you know, you, you build into the experience. Um, second question, is there anything that you taught or a way you taught last semester that you are going to change for the upcoming oh. fall semester? Now, I change my classes all the time. Um, I, I take criticism very well. I tell the students like, Tell me what I did great and tell me what I did bad and needs to change in that evaluation. And and they know I did those evaluations. <laughs> I always <laughs> just said zero. okay because I didn't want to do anything. I well I, did, I turned blank ones in every single yeah, time. I we're West Liberty and you know I will kind of hunt you down and make sure you did the evaluation. Yeah, it, it's much more <laughs> there say where we went to school and there's yeah. hundred people in the classroom. Yeah, no, I I know my students very well. Oh, we'll just leave it at that. So and and but at the same time, they know that I respect what they're gonna tell me. Um, even if it's like you suck at life, don't do this again, which I've gotten. Uh so uh but but yeah, I I, with the grad herpetology class, it was my first online class, and I'm a very hands-on professor, and I flipping despised it. It was, it was not good. Now, the good news was that it was an online class, but my three grad students were the ones taking the class, and I only talked to them like 12 times a day. So, you know, as the class was going on, they were giving me the feedback of, you're doing a great job here, and this kind of sucks. You might want to change that. So I'm, I'm kind of pumped to teach it the next go around because I, I know what I'm going to do. The herpetology class, that class I taught last fall, which I'm teaching again this fall, um, the students said, like, we want a field component because there was not a field component last year. So, you know, you don't have to twist my arm to run outside and flip boards and rocks. That's what I do. So... <laughs> We're going to do some, um, we actually are ordering transmitters and we're going to put transmitters in uh, neurodecipodon, common water snakes, northern water snakes, whatever you want to call them. And we're going to track them and find their hibernacula. So where they're, they're hibernating. Um, that's one of the projects we're going to do. And then I'm, I'm debating whether or not we're going to do something with snapping turtles, but we're probably going to do something with salamanders because I've worked with snapping turtles and students in the past and that's, 
that's just um, we don't need to do that again. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, there's less risk with salamanders. Yeah, yeah, the little redbacks don't cause you know little Jimmy to lose his hand. So <laughs> so there's a conference. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, there is a conference. <laughs> Sorry, it's like good transition. I was like, oh, we should talk about it probably. <laughs> yes. So obviously you are all about the husbandry and there seems mm-hmm. to be a conference that is focused on husbandry. Yes, there is a conference. It's the Advancing Herpetological Husbandry Conference, um, which will be held the weekend of September 27th. And I cannot say this desert to save my life in the Cherahua Desert Museum. Now everyone can make fun of me for saying that wrong. Um, but if you are even remotely interested in naturalistic uh, enclosure design or enrichment or basically keeping animals away. We've been talking about it. Uh, this conference is definitely for you. Um, there's some pretty big names speaking in the conference. Uh, I mentioned the Ferguson scale, the literally the guy who figured out, yeah, reptiles need UVB light. Now I'm going to make this scale for it. That's on the back of every UVB light bulb you buy. He's the guy that's the keynote for the conference. So he'll be there. There's quite a few people coming over from Europe that'll be there. Um, many of you know Ari Flagel. He's giving a presentation on, on what he did. There's lots of zoo folks. So anybody that's interested in this, you might want to consider, you know, going to that. It's a, it's a two-day conference, Friday, Saturday, and then herping in the desert on Sunday. So, you know, you, you, you can't get any better than that. And I'm, I'm going to be there, and I'm bringing a bunch of the ZooSci students with me. And if you're a student an undergraduate student and you've done some kind of research or graduate student that has any kind of basis in herpetoculture, uh, there is a poster session and you are more than welcome to present your poster and a lot of universities will pay your way to get to said conference. Uh, so, you know, this is a good avenue to get it in. And this is the first time this conference has been held in the US. It's been held in Europe a couple of times. It's part of the Advancing Herpetological Husbandry Facebook group. So. So do you know why, I mean, there's such a push in Europe for these husbandry mm-hmm. standards and then over here, is it just like commercially based or what's it's the just, I haven't gone on over here? It's a very different philosophy in keeping. Um, they, well, well, for one, they do have the tool, they've had the tools longer uh, than we have here in the U.S. I mean, if, if when I, as a good example, back in the early 2000s when I was an undergrad doing everything wrong, Part of the reason why I was doing it wrong is you, you couldn't necessarily go out and get all the stuff we have at our fingertips today. If you went across the pond into Europe, they had all that stuff then. So they've just been doing this longer. And at the you know academic level, uh, there's quite a few more people over there that are actually studying this. Uh, and you know all the major UVB research, if you look at the authors, there'll be maybe five authors on the paper. And you know, one will be from America. The other four are from somewhere in Europe. So they've, they've just done it longer than us, you know, and they, they keep things differently. So naturalists have just always been present. And there's, there's a few things that always, especially in the UK, there was a study that came out, I think, uh, just this year that was yeah. basically, it seemed like essentially like a hit piece on people keeping yes. animals in captivity. And it seems like, uh, well, he was also connected to like PETA or one yeah. of, you know, like one of the, uh, animal rights groups but it was also used like even throughout herpetoculture people were sharing it saying that you know if you don't have uh, the snake length of uh, enclosure or whatever then 
I don't know. But basically, um, how can you separate like science from people who are biased trying to <laughs> basically take down what we do for our life? You can't. Well, well, sorry, you can separate science. That's easy to separate science. But that emotional piece doesn't have any business with the science. Um, and that's where we run into problems because people get into their camps or their, their tribes and then you get entrenched in your tribe. And then rather than actually just taking a step back and looking at data, you, you get defensive, you know, look at our world today. And then the next thing you know, everybody's yelling at everybody and we're not actually doing the science. And, and that's, that's one of the things that's most frustrating to me. I mean, even in my career outside of this herpetoculture stuff we're talking about, but you know, I'm a conservation biologist and I work with endangered species. Um, and it, it's amazing what happens when you get this person over here who despises the endangered crayfish to sit down at a table with me and just listen. Like there's a whole bunch of, ah, crayfish is horrible, you suck. And then that goes, and I just sit there. I'm like, are you done? Now let's talk. And when we actually have a conversation, like, oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, oh. And the next thing you know, we come to the middle. And that's that's basically where we're at, I feel, in herpetoculture. There's an opportunity here for everybody to come to the middle. We just need to be willing to. Um, you know, don't don't say necessarily, you know, I'm keeping things the best way possible. If somebody has data that says they're keeping things better, do it. But the, the study you're talking about, it, it could have been presented in a much more scientific way, but it was presented in a manner where it was interpreted as a hit piece. And I agree with that statement. And then it caused complete separation. I mean, some pay, some groups I'm a part of were like, this is the greatest thing ever. And then literally you scroll up one screen and it's like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And you know, it was all about the delivery. So yeah, we all just need to calm down and look what the science is telling us. And basically, enter any interaction with the animal or just any reaction by the animal was seen as stress and therefore shouldn't yes. be involved in its environment when, I mean, it's just impossible to create a stress-free environment. That's the third but, word. Stress. Enrichment, <laughs> intelligence, and stress. Yes. Yeah, now... Now, stress is something that you can actually measure. Um, you can measure stress by taking a blood sample and looking at cortisol levels. You can also measure stress by putting an animal in a, a chamber and then measuring the amount of oxygen that it's consuming. Uh, and that's actually uh, one of the things that I hope to figure out how to do with all of this. What's the best way to keep it, or what's the most efficient way to keep it, or what's the way that the snakes are least stressed? You know, all those are similar but different things, uh, and and that's going to be like, if I figure out how to do that, it's going to be great. But I haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> so, you have to somehow measure oxygen while not impeding yeah. on like airflow for the animal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's ways to do it. It's extremely expensive. Um, uh, but the like the best way to do it is you just simply put the snake in a box. You plug it so there's no new oxygen getting in there and then you put a probe in there that measures the oxygen level going away but you know when you do that it becomes anoxic when things don't have oxygen they die so we don't want to do that snakes <laughs> take longer than other animals yeah. so not that going so for you. you can yeah so you can do airflow systems that we're, we're, we're you know i i have a, a guy who's across the hallway from me who um we're 
he wants to do it for things that live in water. I want to do it for things that live in water and for things that live out of the water. But, you know, but that's the fun thing, you know, the fun part about doing me having my collection now versus when I was 19 or 20 is asking all these questions and trying to get at the answer. It, it makes keeping the snakes that much more interesting because it's not just, you know, rinse, recycle, repeat, but it's like, I'm going to go upstairs to my son's room and grab a Nerf dart and see if I can target train this water cobra. Like, you know, it, it just makes it more fun, if that makes any sense at all. So, Definitely. And I think that anyone can basically the taking action to figure out things. I mean, we yes. can do that on a hobbyist level instead of arguing yeah. on Facebook. We could try to set yeah. up our own mini experiment to try to prove or yeah. disprove yeah. what we're seeing. Nobody's taking option, putting them in a chamber. That's <laughs> well, my that's gonna be a new sure. answer. When someone says about stressing it out, I'm like, oh, did you put it did in a chamber? Did levels? you measure its oxygen levels? Then you don't know shit. It's just fun. He gets to answer it's all just the hard. questions. We gotta somehow perceive these things from a human perspective, and like right. But then I don't. It's it, we. Ha, it's a necessary thing for us to do it, but it's also frustrating when we all have different definitions of what these words mean, and that's I think the frustrating part to me. And so I'm hoping more universities like Westlib do more research, so I can say, hey, like the facts say this, like, this is what actually stresses out the snake. This is what makes it. Well, I, and I think you know, we do stress it out anytime we interact with it, unfortunately, but, but there's, uh, we're back. There's, oh, that was a long so one. Yeah. I got butt puckered there. All right. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this gives us an opportunity to ask a new question. And yeah. I was kind of wondering from a conservation standpoint, Obviously, there's a black eye on our hobby of private mm -hmm. keeping as far as smuggling and obviously wild caught animals. So, I mean, how as hobbyists can we combat that and kind of make it so we give less of a, or have less of an effect on the natural environment? Don't keep a freaking cobra and let it escape and get beheaded by old woman in Pennsylvania. You know. I don't know if you heard about that. No, but like oh, I have not. Yeah, wow, that happened last week, two weeks ago, something like that. Yeah. And then, meanwhile, three weeks before that, two weeks before that, in Pittsburgh, some guy had alligators in his backyard, and they scampered underneath chain link fence, and were found like in the neighborhood. You know, when when the herpetoculture community does things like that those are nothing but black eyes with the conservation agencies that i work with and i actually see both sides of it um i don't i think there is definitely nothing but good that comes when herpetoculturalists are breeding things in captivity you know you get your captive born animals or the pressure on the wild population goes away and there's something really important in keeping a snake like i would not have been the scientist i am today if i wasn't allowed to keep all those lizards growing up like that's important and and life history biology and there's aspects of biology that people like me can learn from hobbyists that have a collection of 300 snakes you know that's a huge data set potential if you work with a scientist um to, to answer some kind of question so there, there's positive there, but it's just when we do very stupid things, and unfortunately, most of the people that are good at this don't do very stupid things, but when you decide to like walk down the street with your six-foot bow around your neck, or you go to the reptile show and have your damn Burmese python around your neck, and it's bouncing off eight-year-old's heads, which 
quite literally happened the last time that I was at one of those shows I mentioned. Um, you know, that's just dumb. Like we it just just cool it with that. You know, that that's or that's, your alligator or yeah. your, like <laughs> anything. Don't walk around with it at a show. And then it's also hard to be the guy who says that we shouldn't have alligators or we shouldn't be able to sell yeah. alligators because you don't want to be that guy. But it seems that no. like most people are not doing the right thing. Yeah. And I do think there are some situations, and, and now I'm going to really irritate people, but like, let's talk about alligators. Why do you need an alligator, the largest animal reptile that lives in North America? You know, Jim Bob down the street should not have that living in his basement. An educator, an environmental educator who's going to go teach the masses about alligator biology. Sure, you have your alligator. Um, but what are you going to do when the alligator gets to be six feet? You're going to put it in your backyard and then it's going to crawl underneath the chain link fence and end up in the neighborhood like what happened in Pittsburgh. Now, um, in Pittsburgh, for the first time ever, they're talking about potential reptile bans. Uh, and, you know, People's response to that was they can't take my snakes. Well, let's think about what caused that, the cause and effect thing here. But at the same time, there's plenty of breeders in Pittsburgh that are doing everything right. And they end up getting punished because of that guy <laughs> who had the alligator's backyard. So it's like a it's a it's a real problem. If you're in an area where the reptiles can survive in the wild, then it gets even more murky. So like South Florida, if you as a conservation biologist, South Florida is insane. I mean, it's you can look at a you can see an American Nile. It's next to a chameleon, next to a Nile monitor, next to, you know Toke geckos. The first time I took students down to the Keys on a diving trip, we were outside the first night, and I was hearing this like gecko, gecko. I was like, what? What the hell was that? That sounds like a Toke gecko. Like. I had one in my bedroom when I was a junior in high school. It made that exact noise. We walked over to the palm tree. There was a one toke gecko. There were six. Like, it was insane. So, you know, unfortunately, when those animals get into the wild, whether people want to hear it or not, they are going to cause ecological harm. Um, great example. There is now a parasite to pit vipers in Florida, uh, a type of worm that gets down in the trachea and the lungs. That came from, it's believed, the Burmese pythons that were imported that then escaped, or some kind of Asiatic reptile that escaped. And, you know, that's bad. Yeah, that, but if those animals didn't get loose, the dusky pygmy rattlesnakes and the eastern diamondback rattlesnakes and all those rattlesnakes wouldn't be dealing with that. So we just need to police ourselves. You know, when, when people do very dumb things, I don't see anything wrong with telling them, you may not want to do things that way, but if you come at them with fists up, whether we like it or not, they're going to come at you with fists up and it just doesn't get anything done. So it seems like a lot of times, actually, I shouldn't say that. That's a blanket statement. And I don't know a lot of times. It seems like sometimes <laughs> the things I hear, <laughs> someone does something stupid and then there's like a ban on everything. And then like a little bit later, they come up like, oh, let's do permits. And I'm like, wait, yeah. why isn't the permit? The next step. Well, like, what why happens is, the ban, is they why ban is the ban the next step? And, and why then is we have we have people fight, fight for it, it and at US Arc, and then hopefully we get. But yeah. like, it's been done a trillion times. Why aren't people like, oh, wait, the ban 
I don't have to do this. Like, I don't, I don't well, understand why the permit that, isn't the next step after someone messes that up. it seems like we're going in one direction and things yes. are being taken away from us. But luckily us arc, you know, they overturned say retakes for a little while. They weren't able to go state to state, but we finally won one. I think that was the first one we like <laughs> legit won in a very, very long time. So now it feels like maybe there's a chance to fight these things, but it does seem like overwhelmingly things are trending poorly for the private keeper. Yeah. And it's just, it's an unfortunate situation. And deserved uh, in some situations, but, let's yeah. be honest. But yeah. Another thing that happened, um, New York, I think it was just this last week, had its largest bust ever uh, when it comes to native wildlife. I mean, it wasn't like reptiles. It was the largest native wildlife bust in the history of New York. And New York's a big city. And when they went into this guy's collection, he had hundreds of native turtles. So bog turtles, spotted turtles, wood turtle. Like, and some of those are more endangered than others, but some of those are really endangered. And that's a situation where I'm sure, you know, they showed some of his setups in the pictures and the setups were beautiful. But <clears throat> at the same time, you know, just respect the damn rule. You don't need to have a bog turtle. Go get a bog turtle from somewhere else. If you if you don't give them a reason to look and nail you, then these agent these conservation agencies aren't going to do that, and that just protects all of us. But if you must have twenty bog turtles and it's not legal to have a bog turtle, and somebody moves in, and now boom, the bog turtles are are, are being collected from the wild, you know, then those conservation agencies are going to see that. And I work with those conservation agencies, so I'm in the, the weird position of seeing both sides of an argument very, very clearly. And what's unfortunate um, is that the only one that loses out, I mean, the biggest loss is the turtles themselves because we have a friend yeah. who works in New York and we were talking about that situation and he's like, well, that guy was actually very well equip equipped to keep those turtles, but <laughs> we're not. New York State is <laughs> yeah, not exactly. equipped to keep those turtles. <laughs> and we're also not paying attention where these are all collected so they're either yeah. going to be dropped off randomly to where their habitat is, or they're just going to wither away somewhere. Some agency you that know, like, doesn't know what they're and, doing with it. Yeah. And that that's and it's just sad in the end because the thing that loses out the most is, is the turtle. Like, you know, and that's ironically what everybody in theory cares the most about. So yeah, conservation is definitely a complicated spider web. Um and it, it is bureaucratic to hell and back, and it'll make you bang your head against a desk. Um, like, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that, because that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but you keep going in hopes that you're making strides towards a yeah. better world. Yeah. You, you yeah, yeah. like, you got to fight to conserve, like, shit bugs and, like, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like, Everything matters. Like we had at the main, like... Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we're talking about this. I'm like, wait, but what about this? Wait, but what about this? And there's just, I'm like, there's so many animals. <laughs> yeah. Like, just, well, that's so why if you, if you conserve the ecosystem that all the animals live in, then bigger bang for your buck. Well, that that's always the question, right? I mean, we're, we're easy targets, private keepers. There's no one defending mm -hmm. us, really. I mean, besides, obviously, U.S. Arc. But in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, say your short tail pythons over in Asia, those animals are being skinned. Yeah. You know, that that's going to be more of an issue or deforestation is going to be more an issue for that animal. But 
we're also contributing it, but it seems like a lower percentage. I mean, are there any, do you know of any instances where, you know, something like the, the pet trade is actually decimating, you know, populations of animals? It, if the animals don't reproduce often and have few young and they reach maturity late in life, if you're taking those type of animals, that's what we would call a K life history strategy, um, out of the wild, you are absolutely going to be impacting them. And I know in the past that's that has definitely happened with various species of tortoises. So like a um, plowshare tortoise or something? Exactly. Like that. that was the one I was thinking of. The Madagascar plowshare uh, was, um, you know, we've all read Stolen World. Um, <laughs> uh, but that was a, a case of that. We're all aware of also things like fungus, like chytrid going on in amphibian yeah. species and things like fungal disease in snakes. Is there any like, I guess we're kind of perpetuating or helping the spread of that disease. Uh, as far as chytrid goes, I can imagine um, importing, exporting, all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, well, that's a that's a fun example, actually, because chytrid fungus it, it was thought for a long time to come over, to have initially come over with um, African clawed frogs, Xenopus. Um, and the Xenopus that were here back in the 70s, they, they came here and you know, I had one growing up, the little frog that lived in your fish tank. But a lot of those were here for pregnancy tests. They weren't actually here because um, people were keeping them. Back in the 70s and 60s, a pregnancy test. I love how this is going. <laughs> yeah, it was a space is amazing. A woman would pee in a cup, you'd give that pee to the lab, then they would take that pee out, inject the frog with the urine, and if your you know, hormone levels were indicative of you having a child, females start, frogs uh, uh, immediately ovulate, starts dropping eggs like crazy. And so if you think about it, like I had my frog because I wanted to have my frog, but hospital with frogs? What the hell do they do with these frogs when they're done? So they would go out back and dump them. And when you go out back and dump those frogs that came from Africa, uh, you're introducing that pathogen. And so we thought that was the main cause. And it came out that it could have been um, uh, firebelly toads were a huge you know, potential vector. That's an example that was just pure pet trade. And now we're back to, we think we know, but we don't know. And that's what led but we do know that these two frogs that were being maintained by people brought this absolutely horrendously awful disease into America. And that's why the Fish and Wildlife Service's response with salamanders is we have to stop the importation of these salamanders from Asia and Europe because there's a, um, a disease over there called B-sal. And it is just eliminating salamanders like it's its damn job because it is and right now we don't have b-cell in the united states unless something's happened in the past like six months um and in that act like yeah i had fire belly newts back in the day i would love to have a fire belly newt for my son but i don't need a fire belly newt personally if it means biosecurity we're going to keep this pathogen that could get into the southern appalachians and wipe out the epicenter of salamander diversity you want like in in that that's you know, that's a situation where it wasn't necessarily a keeper doing something, but it's just all the science points clearly toward this is not going to be okay if it makes its way over here. So, you know, there's there's those preventative measures that can be done that make people cranky, but I don't know. Uh, okay. Yeah, it seems like more and more biosecurity becomes uh, yeah. a hot issue as far as 
the things Where that we're the seeing. Where the fuck was the biosecurity when they're injecting frogs with pee? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still on that. People wanted also, to know they were going to have a baby. <laughs> who was the first person who did that? That's what I want to know. Who's that guy? Yeah, how many frogs who's, did they inject Who was the guy who was like, let me try this. Like, what? <laughs> Why has it got to be yeah. a guy? It was a guy. Yeah, it was hundred percent a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, there's just some things in this world you're like our girl's not gonna do that i'm sorry yep. <laughs> but I well, the better question is where did the guy get the pee like mm. see what i'm saying yeah yeah i don't like this more and more what year was- <laughs> and i need a link to this article though i want to read it yeah you, you can definitely look it up we will absolutely have to have you on again to get a version yeah. of this not skipping all over. Mm-hmm. Have fun <laughs> editing it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll make it work. You'll sound good on the download. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you or figure out more about the program, where can they go? Um, if you want to learn about the major, just look me up on Facebook. It's Zach Lockman, L-O-U-G-H-M-A-N. Um, and just PM me. And I can talk to you there. And then obviously email works. Um, and that's zlofman at westliberty.edu. But um, yeah. And we're also looking for grad students. So if you got your degree and you want to get into the zoo and you don't know how to get into the zoo, please, please, please consider our graduate degree in ZooSci because all these experiments we were talking about, you could be doing them for your master's thesis, which is pretty cool. So, And that can be taken online, correct? Yeah, that can be done online. So you don't have to come to the university. We do it remotely, or you can actually come to West Lib uh, and do it remotely. Or not, wait, that wouldn't be remotely. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it on site. Sweet. And then the conference. Yes, the conference. You can find that at ahhconference.com. You can also go to Advancing Herpetological Husbandry on Facebook. And, you know, that group asked to join the group and the conference is all over that group because they're the ones that are that are putting it on. Um, so, yeah. And it is the weekend of September 27th. Awesome. And as for us, PortCityPythons.com, Melissa's still staring at bugs in the room. Uh, <laughs> you going to help me on the outro? Shirts are available at PortCityPythons.com. <laughs> we have more animals coming out of the eggs shortly. Hopefully and we'll be- as we speak. Okay, calm down. We'll we will be putting them up for sale once they have three consecutive meals, probably five as a whole, all on frozen thoughts. So if you see anything you like, check us out on Instagram and hit us up. Patreon, thank you guys so much for all your support. Thank you. You make Zach. all this possible. Oh, excuse me. Thank you, Dr. Zach. For yeah, no problem. I like Dr. Zach the most. So, you know, <laughs> I, I get called that all the time. Should we say Southwest Garbage Fest is coming up? Yeah, let's say. And then the one in the UK is too, but you got to know the exact dates if you're going to bring it I up. I want to say UK is August either 3rd or 5th. I was going to say 3rd or 5th, 3rd. And I want to say Southwest is July 27th. All right. Southwest is at Brian Cusco's house. UK is in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> well done. That, that general area. <laughs> Somewhere in England. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're narrowing it down, yeah, actually. Yeah. That's great. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to look up all that stuff, they have Facebook groups. Southwest yeah. Carpet Fest has a Facebook group as well as the UK Carpet Fest. 
And of course, that is in association with our friends at Morelia Python Radio. And then the UK one is in association with the guys at Morelia Python Radio, but with all, with the guys from Reptile and Chill yes. podcast, they're hosting it. So I know that's kind of a mouthful and that's probably confusing for people, but just Google them. They're all cool people. If you are in California or I like how you just said Brian Cusco's house, acting like everyone knew where he was supposed to live. <laughs> but, uh, he's in even California and as well as oh man well i thought southwest i'm trying yeah. to think of the name of the town that uh that haas and phelps are in Does sorry guys a, start with the a no thank you guys <laughs> so much for watching and listening and everything thank you so much for being here thank you dr zach yeah thank you so much for being here and we will catch you guys next Later. week